Welcome back, listeners, to episode number 51 of the BDU podcast, the final one of the year. Like, guys, I don't want to toot, toot our own horn, but like, we didn't miss a single episode. Like, are we fucking good or are we fucking good? We don't miss, baby. Exactly, exactly. Well, before we uh, get started with the listener questions, I do want to dive in with a catch up because I know you boys have been quite busy, especially with a bunch of shows over the past couple of weeks. And I want to see what you boys are up to. So I think I'm going to throw it over to Lawrence, the most interesting one of the group at the moment, which is uh, the comp prep athlete. Well, what's been happening? Once again, I don't understand why you say at the moment i'm year round i'm the most interesting person on the podcast you know that so no i'm just kidding um mate things are good we are going to be 18 weeks out this weekend and i'm quite happy with how things are looking um it's interesting how you do a few preps and like as you obviously you guys as coaches have a much would have a much better eye than me anyway in terms of like when someone is getting leaner when someone is getting softer but I feel like I'm at the stage in my journey finally where I can start to actually look at my photos and assess my physique and be like, oh, okay, that's sort of in a bit more this week. That looks a bit leaner this week as opposed to just like sending my pictures through and like waiting for my macros. Um, So it's cool to see the changes and like have my own thoughts before I then get the feedback from Joey. But um, But now you've just taken over your coaching. You just pretty much run the show now. Uh, Yeah, I was like, Joey, I'll hit you off the peak week, mate. I've got it from here. Yeah. yeah nice. Um. So we, I'm about three kilos down after about sort of four. I guess it's like four or five weeks of dieting, and we actually haven't made any um, adjustments to calories aside from the first initial drop. So we've been losing on that for a few weeks now, quite nicely. Training has been excellent. Um, had a really really good leg session today, and yeah, just in a really good spot. Like energy feels great. I just sleep has been oddly very good lately like i'm not a a bad sleeper but i'm not a you know hit the bed and lights out type thing Um, but i've been sleeping really well it's just yeah that nice phase of prep where everything is just sort of tracking along nice and smoothly and um i suppose when everything's taking care of itself it gives me a chance to get really excited about you know all the competitions and stuff so yeah um, i'm in a good spot man tracking smoothly a bit too smoothly Mm. well look mate if you sort of something's got to give so you can keep your Mm. calories the same for the whole prep but just introduce something else in your repertoire that could burn fat um Mm. i'll leave it at that are you taking anything for your (laughs) are you taking it no i'm joking it's obviously a, a joke do you take any sleep supplements like adrenal switch or anything like that have you found any benefit on them Oh, look, I used to take adrenal switch and I think I got good at telling myself that it was doing something because it probably didn't actually have enough dosages to do anything. I do think that the adrenal capsules, I used to take them just for the magnesium. So I still take magnesium tab like capsules, but um, they're not the adrenal ones anymore. But I do take a product called Delta Zone, um, which look, I'll be completely honest. I think most of the sleep supplements out there are uh, pretty meh at best, like haven't really noticed much from them. Um but Delta Zone by BPM Labs is probably the only one where I can feel like a noticeable difference. But once again, like it, it's just that cherry on top when everything else is in line. I think that the biggest change with my sleep has been just trying to be off my phone more like in that sort of 90 minutes before bed. Um, and the nights where I'm maybe doing a bit of work on my computer or I'm on my phone right up until bedtime, I notice that is a, you know, a lot worse. So if I can minimize the screen time plus 
get you know the little bit of assistance from the sleep uh sup on board then i'm i'm pretty golden yeah very nice i know jack's got his heart his eyes out for the zma supplementation <laughs> he's, he's ready to go for it so i'm not we, we're gonna can it there before he goes too deep into it but jack how's your week been yeah, it's been good. Oddly enough, my sleep has been quite good despite mini cutting as well. And usually as soon as I hit a deficit, like I start to wake up a little bit earlier. But uh, yeah, so far my my human alarm clock, which is Tierra, um, I'm pretty much waking up to that each morning. So that's uh, that's been great. Um, it's very nice to be able to sleep in. And otherwise things are going well. I hit, I'm pretty much being 90.1 kilos on the dot for two days in a row. So I've pretty much got one week left of dieting until I'm, I'll, I'll hit 89 and a half, which is kind of the end point of this mini cut definitely in the next week. And that'll be good to just transition back into a surplus. Um, and I'll probably have like two and a half weeks back in a surplus until we head overseas uh, for three weeks. And yeah, we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens with food over there. But nothing else much from me, to be honest. Just keen to wrap up the mini cut. How many weeks has it now been in the mini cut? Was it like four kilos over four weeks? Uh, it's been just over more like five and a half kilos lost in, in four weeks. Yeah. Very nice. Is there any reason that you're going to do the two weeks of surplus or maintenance before going on the holidays? Instead yeah, of just I'd, going I mean, from a dieted phase to a holiday? Yeah, I just think it will be better for me to try and bring up calories a little bit more rather than go straight from a deficit into like time spent in the U S where food is a little bit crazy. I think it makes more sense to bring up to maintenance. Let me adapt a little bit. Cause I'm, I'm incredibly adaptive. So I know that two weeks at maintenance, I'll be back up eating close to 4,000 calories again. Do you have mm. any food on the hit list for America? Surely um, it's like in and out burger. Cause like you're not a bodybuilder unless you've <laughs> consumed in and out once in your life, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to have to hit a lot of those places at the at the airport because we're staying on like an island uh, with Tierra's grandparents and I'm not sure how much fast food will be over there, but I do want to hit in and out I want to get a Twinkie as well at some point, even though I might only take one bite. I'm not sure if I'll enjoy that. And well, Twinkies are unbelievable. That's a, a wonderful, a wonderful good? sweet treat. Yeah, they're solid. Okay. Did you watch like Zombieland recently? <laughs> No, I didn't, but yeah, I know it. I know it features in Zombieland and <laughs> Twinkies, I guess. And that Maybe one... that's what Tierra calls Jack. That's the nickname. <laughs> Twinkie. <laughs> well, it's just that kind of iconic American food, which you can't can't really get over here. I guess a lot of the stuff you can't, but pretty much any American fast food, I haven't really partaken in, and I'm, I guess I haven't even partaken in KFC over here. So I've still got a lot on my list. You're going to have to load up on the cereal because like that mm. cereal over there in America, like you literally have like four times the variety and yeah. Yeah. You sell it over and, and you, yeah. I was about to say you could sell it for about five times the price as what you buy it over there for as well. Mm. So if you got any spots left in the luggage, I'm sure you could resell it to some listeners. Yeah, for sure. What about you DC? How have you handled the uh, shows and staying on track? Yeah, good mate. I would say probably my training frequency has been a touch a touch less than usual. Like I've been getting in more like four sessions per week as opposed to five, but I've tried to tried to sort of condense those sessions a little bit more so I'm not losing out on too much overall volume. Uh just because the weekends have been, you know, immensely busy and there's been shows on, I guess, most weekends over the last, you know, four weeks. Uh, so there's ICN Nationals this weekend, which are very excited about. Nicole and I fly down on Friday morning. 
can you get a session there before we um we obviously head into the venue on the saturday um but mate other than that i think my body weight at the moment is sitting around 93 so i'm sort of pushing back up from where i went down to around 91 uh sitting in a great spot i mean even though training training frequency is down my performance has been great so i'm still making some nice progressions upon most of my lifts so yeah in a good spot man i think um I think uh, like the additional stress of shows and everything like that, I would assume that my performance was be, would be down, but it's been, it's been pretty good. So I've kind of surprised myself there. Yeah, very nice. Rooms. I've been in like, I guess, like somewhat of a similar spot with obviously the shows. I have been running a mini cut for a while. I wouldn't say adherence is probably where I would like it to be. I think with like the shows moving around, like training times, I also had my family coming up. So uh, it was good to see them because I don't get to see them too often, but uh it did slow down the rate of loss of what I would like of normally probably like a kilo a week to probably like seven, 800 grams. So I'll probably extend my dieting phase maybe for an extra week. I'm in deload at the moment, but other than that, like training has been actually really good. I know it's a pain managing like show times as well. Like, you know, shows pretty much go for like the entirety of the day. So having to get up early, you know, six o'clock, it's unheard of. It's crazy for an online trainer. Um, but no, nah. <laughs> well, the alarm clock probably wakes you up at that time anyway, Jack, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but like er everything's been good. Like I said, maybe I might have to extend my mini card an extra week, depending on what Joe thinks. Um, but other than that, everything's been going quite smoothly. So mm. I guess, cause like if a show is, for example, on, on the Sunday, like you were at the NBA show and so was I, um, like usually Sunday might be like a bit of a, a rest day, a bit of a prepare for the week, a week ahead sort of thing, meal prep, whatever it may be, but obviously when you're at a show it's a huge day like and then straight up you know straight into the monday you're back into more check-ins for for the athletes and uh, and then obviously you tra and training so it's kind of i feel like probably you you and myself it's like and even jack you know it's like four weeks straight i don't even know what week it is what day it is <laughs> it's yeah kind of just the, the days just roll through but it's good i mean this is what we yeah. do it for, right like this yeah. is the most exciting part of the year if you didn't love it, it would be, you know, exactly <laughs> a little right. bit different, but yeah, it's like, you know, you might normally wind down on a Sunday and then every single bodybuilding show is always on the Sunday and then it goes for like a full day. So then it's mm. like, then you're doing peak weeks up again that night to ensure the athletes are all taken care of. So yeah, it does get a little bit full on over this time, but like, you know, it's only twice a year pretty much. Mm. All right, let's get into some of the uh, listener questions. Uh, this one's actually mine. Um, <laughs> so no listeners. Well, I do listen, but uh, <laughs> common misconceptions on how to perform exercises, like poor exercise cues. So I'm going to throw this over to Lawrence. One one I want to give is an, an example of is like the knees over the toes. Remember how it used to be big that like, you know, your knees couldn't go over your toes, especially when you're in squatting. And now it's like the main thing is make sure your knees go over the toes. So you have any others, Lawrence? Yeah, well, I think the um, the knees over toes, actually, it sort of falls back into that like spinal flexion during deadlifting, which uh, that's been a while since it's come up. So um, yeah, that's crazy. It had been um, a little bit too long. So I just had to re-trigger this question back yeah. into the potty to up the viewers even further. It was like the first 45 episodes and then nothing for five. So we're back. Um, but yeah, I think that was more of like a you know, your knees shouldn't go past your toes. It's bad for your knees, blah, 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 which obviously we know much better now. I must say this is a, a difficult one because I can't think of too many, like obviously hinging is always one that, you know, there's a lot of debate about where you should be placing your weight. Like I know, you know, there's the, okay, should we be putting our weight through our heels and really shifting 
the hips back or should it more be like an even footing but sort of just leaning the torso forward but I think the thing with exercise cueing is that people are going to respond differently to like an external cue versus an internal cue and some people just aren't going to be able to like feel like they're doing something when you tell them to do a certain thing like I see it at work quite a lot where you're teaching people how to hip hinge and you might say to them, okay, I want you to try, keep your torso relatively flat. Imagine someone is, you know, got a, a rope around your hips and they're pulling you backwards and it's driving your hips backwards. Some people are just going to look at you and go like, what the hell are you talking about? So for those people, what I might do to teach them how to use a hip hinge is <clears throat> get something, something like a, a Dow stick, get them to put, one end of the stick on their nose, another end of the stick where their belt buckle would be, and then to lean forward whilst keeping both of those points in contact. And that seems to be a good way to sort of get the idea of, okay, I'm shifting my hips back, but I'm keeping my torso relatively flat and relatively rigid. And I think you just, you're constantly needing to modify cues based on the person in front of you. So I don't know if there's any that stand out that are particularly bad, um, at least none that I could think of at the moment. So maybe ask the other boys and I'll, I'll have more of a think. Anything come to mind, DC? Um, yeah, so I think like you touched upon the whole internal and external cues. Like I think some people will respond well to external cues versus like internal cues. So like if you were teaching somebody to, let's say posterior pelvic tilt at the, the top range of a hip thrust, like if you just said that to them, hey, like make sure you, you know, tuck your pelvis underneath and, and you know, posteriorly tilt your pelvis, they, they might not resonate with what that means. So you might say more like, you know, point your, your belt buckle back towards you, like towards the top range. So I think probably poor cueing is more, more specific to the individual in terms of, you know, if, if the person's just not getting the movement, then you have to think outside the box with respect to how, how to make it kind of grasp, you know, within their, their knowledge base. Like you wouldn't use anatomical terms or planes of movement you wouldn't describe like sagittal plane and coronal plane and things like that for someone who's just not uh, equipped with how to understand that so i guess it's you need to speak to your audience in terms of where where someone is at within their training their training journey you know if they're really relatively new you're probably gonna have to simplify things a lot more than someone who has you know many ex years of experience uh, when it comes to you know movement and training yeah, one that comes up for me just quickly is lat training. Like people, for example, doing a seated row and they've got some good elbow flare going on and maybe they're rocking back a bit and using some momentum, which is fine in, in a standard seated row to an extent. But if you're really trying to bias the lats, then not ideal for a, to, to bias the lats in that form of seated row or doing maybe a wide grip pull down. Like people always say, oh, to build the lats, you do a, a wide grip pull up or a wide grip pull down. But I mean, especially with the emergence of, of Cass, who we've talked about, Coach Cassim, I, I think we, we know that there are more effective ways to bias the lats nowadays. Was it the, the why, do you, why do you go on lat pull-downs? The why do you get? That was the old misconception. <laughs> and now next thing you know, it's like everyone's having their elbow super close, tucked in, like they're all doing mm -hmm. like the iliac lat pull-down. So it's definitely changed. Very nice. Um, next one I wanted to get into is a coach necessary for a prep or can you do it all yourself? I feel like you could do it all yourself, especially like, I feel like any one of us boys, like Jack, you've done your own prep by yourself. DC I'm sure could manage his own prep now after being through it. But I feel like you've got to at least 
be under someone for at least one season. I only know of one person that's really prepped themselves that's done extremely well. And I just feel like the amount of knowledge you would need to accrue would be just extremely hard. You got to have, you got to be decently like knowledgeable about training, nutrition, managing stress, like, you know, all these other little things. And I find like the easiest way to learn that is actually through a coach, like to get a good coach that can take you there that first time, maybe show you some of the ropes, like things that you're looking for. And then maybe you might be able to try it yourself. Like, like I said, you, you could do it yourself first off the bat. I have seen it, but I think if you were to let someone else that was extremely good at that, like, you know, federation and that division that you want to do to take the reins for the first time, I think you could get a lot further, especially in doing it yourself. Mm. What about you, DC? Do you think you could prep yourself next time? Yeah, I think I could. Um, but I, I would have to treat it as if I was doing like a check-in for myself, basically. Um, so that I could observe objectively, you know, what the data is for that week in terms of my rate of loss, like pull up my photos and basically treat, treat myself as, as if I was the athlete that I was interpreting as almost like an out of body style experience. Um, I think it's, I think coaching yourself uh, is, is tough hundred percent. I think to sometimes make those hard decisions to bring your best physique goes against what your sort of inherent um biological urges which is to consume eat you know etc so you know times where you'll have to say hey i'm not losing at the, at the appropriate rate that i need but i'm also you know feeling absolute like shit in training and i'm incredibly de depleted but i haven't had a rate of loss in the last two weeks okay maybe i actually need to adjust something to make things move a little bit more assertively okay i look at my physique photos i'm not really seeing a lot of tangible change within the last two weeks okay things need to change and unless you were really switched on with how to make those those adjustments and to to, to rationalize doing so for the objection of, of of objective of getting on stage looking 100%, then it would be tough for most individuals to make that sort of call. And I think that's often where a coach can make that sort of non-biased, uh, or I guess their bias is, is making you look 100% on stage, but they're able to combine the objective with the subjective in regards to how you're feeling and also how you're looking and how you're progressing. So to wear all of those hats as both the athlete and the coach, I think is very difficult unless you've got an incredible knowledge base with regards to both training and nutrition. What about you, Jack? Do you find it hard when you were doing your own prep trying to balance I mean, those two? Even, even then, like I had, had Alan and I would say the hardest part by far for me is, is not the knowledge component is more so the, the mental component and wanting to, because I find it can go either way in prep. As DC said, like you have to resist the biological urges, which is to eat more food. And I think we all accomplish that very well. And maybe even for the majority of us, it's the opposite of wanting to push harder. And that was more so me. And I think it takes the coach to be able to treat me as their client and be like, okay, this is what we need to do. This is how you're going to achieve your best physique and not by kind of dieting yourself too rapidly into the ground so i think there's one thing to know the information another thing to apply it in general another thing yet again to apply it to yourself and that's where even the most experienced coaches have coaches like all three of us are probably going to have coaches for the all four of us are going to have coaches for the foreseeable future i can imagine yeah and i think all of us just recognize the importance of having an extra set of eyes you know irrespective of whether it's actually someone completely coaching you through the whole journey or at least having a look at your progress infrequently monthly you know whatever it may be because you need someone to objectively look at you outside of your own 
you know, thought pattern. I guess we're, we're often our own worst critics, right? So having that objective set of eyes, that extra set of eyes is only, you know, only can, can only be of benefit, particularly if they're like well-educated and they're on, they're doing the right thing, right? That's obviously uh, an important aspect there, but yeah, I, I, I completely resonate what you, what you said, Jack. I think it's, you know, incredibly important to have that extra person there, irrespective. On the topic of prep, what type of foods would you consume in a prep, Jack? Coaches given this female athlete uh, fits your macros approach. What, what do you think? Yeah, interesting. So I think my advice for a comp prep is Get definitely... I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, first I wanted to ask Lawrence if um, if he would ever prep himself before I uh, go on to the this question. No, I don't think I could. Because I think, I think I'm probably on the opposite end. Like, I don't know if inherently I would really like want to just grind myself into the ground like if anything i think i'm probably i would be probably too lenient with myself like oh yeah you're a bit flat have a refeed lad like i don't know if i'd have um that ruthlessness so no i th I don't think it's a coincidence that like it, that it is rare to see someone at the highest level prepping themselves because you know look at the olympia big army still as a coach Derek lunsford still as a coach the olympics as well exactly i mean if Roger Federer still has a, a coach in his box or Rafael Nadal, like it's clearly there is something to be said for just being the athlete so that you can focus on that side and, you know, leave a lot of the planning and logistics to someone else. And not to say it can't be done. You know, there is instances where, you know, people can do it very, very well, but I do, I do think it's rare. Yeah. Well, uh, getting onto this question, I, as I was saying, like definitely a more extreme approach compared to if someone was, was just doing a, a general dieting phase or even a mini cut in their improvement season. And for the most part, I recommend my competitors to pretty much have a very cons consistent approach in prep. Like I could, we could easily do a whole topic on, sorry, a whole podcast episode on this topic of what do you eat in prep? Because we could talk about diet foods. We could talk about food choices and peak week and limiting dietary fiber because there's different phases and maybe how you would volumize your food without sort of going above and beyond with volume. But essentially just to keep it simple, like keeping your food choices fairly similar, um, not starting too heavy in terms of volume. So keeping food volume fairly low to begin with or, or normal and then increasing food volume to a sensible extent as your appetite increases, not going overboard with diet foods, but definitely my number one would be keep it simple, probably follow a meal plan if you can. And yeah, those would be the, the major points really. Like there aren't any specific foods that I'm going to tell anyone to eat, but if I see someone for lack of a better word, like just being stupid with their nutrition, then I'm going to like, if they're eating halo top every night then i'm going to be telling them to to probably avoid doing that and i mean like a tub of halo top yeah as long as you only have half a tub you're allowed to be on <laughs> jack's team so we will clear that up now now it, on the point of the if it fits your macros as well and like that approach on the back end of prep you're pretty much gonna have to clear it clean up your macros and be on a meal plan more or less regardless like once your calories get down to a point where it does get uncomfortable you probably realize that a lot of your foods are going to be whole foods just because you want to get more more out of them, you're going to need to get more micronutrients in there as well. Um, so, like, you might be able to go with a if it fits your macros approach at the start, as long as you're getting like decent nutrients in, like you know you're having enough protein, you're getting decent carbohydrates around your training. But then on the back end, it's like I don't know about you boys, but like 
I might have started like that, but at, at the end, I was having the exact same meals every single day just because I knew I enjoyed it enjoyed them they were digesting very nicely um and yeah they were just i was getting the most bang for my buck in terms of like micronutrients because if you just have straight like zero micronutrient dense foods you're probably going to be very very hungry and you're probably going to run into some issues probably health wise as well yeah i know sorry just i just wanted to again chat to lawrence about this because i know that he's kind of promoting um more flexibility in his jump off the call boys me and jack will take it from here yeah like by the sounds of it, it's all about you and Lawrence. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kind of trying to create some contention here with me and Lawrence, really. See if we can get an argument going. It's almost but, like you're trying to rile him up while he's on low cows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm on lower cows than him, to be fair. Yeah, I think we compared that. There was about about even. Mm. Yes. So, because you you're obviously promoting like some more flexibility at the moment in the start of your prep, and I think I would. <laughs> And that's kind of at the opposite of, of what I just said. Uh, so uh, not that I'm getting at you, but I think I would sort of categorize you as like a more experienced competitor. So you can certainly handle that. And I think a lot of the questions we get are more so from people who are, are less experienced. Um, but I think having that extra flexibility at the start of prep isn't an issue as long as you genuinely think that it helps. Like I think some people might occasionally trick themselves into thinking, okay, I'm going to have some extra flexibility, but does it really help? Like, compared to having a fairly consistent intake of food. Mm. And I, th- I think it also comes down to the reason it's like, well, why do you want to have that flexibility? Because in all honesty, if it was up to me and I was so because I guess the main thing is like enjoying meals with like family and my significant other. So like if I was single probably would, would obviously that cuts out a certain amount of like, you know, date nights or if Gemma wants to have something like, you know, the other night Gemma was like, oh, let's make like some like poke bowls or poke bowls or whatever you want to call them. So it's like, would I typically go out of my way to have a meal where I'm having like these noodles and like these little crunchy garnishes that I put on? No, I wouldn't normally go to that level of effort to eat my food, but it's something Gemma wanted to do. It was something we could do together, have a bit of fun. Perfect. Happy to do that can macro it all in easy peasy same sort of thing it's like all right it's mother's day this weekend we're going to be going out for breakfast you know in a perfect world would i probably just prefer to eat my meal at home yeah i probably would but i know that it's not going to be massively outside of my capabilities to just go there order a few eggs order a couple slices of toast and while i can macro that in very easily so i think it all comes down to like I'm not just at home looking at the pantry going, Ooh, what can I, what can I fit in today? Because if it was my way and I just said, all right, I don't say I'm single. And I was like to my family, I'm in prep now. I'm not eating off plan at all. Like I probably just would, it'd it'd be easy, but I think it's more like, you know, I, I feel better being able to still participate in some of those social things right now while I still can. And I think it also makes it a bit better for the people around you because especially i mean you guys are all in a unique situation where all of your partners like have competed before they very directly understand what's going on and of course Gemma understands what's going on but you know she's not as entrenched in this world as we are so for me to just like cold turkey go yep that's it i'm in prep no eating out for the next eight months catch you later we'll we'll have um dinner in december sometime like i don't know i just don't see that as one, I don't think it's necessary to get into good condition because um, in my last prep, I, I took a pretty similar approach to what I'm doing now and I still got 
in very, very good condition. And two, I just don't think it's conducive for, you know, giving back to the people who are ultimately trying to support you. Mm. Yeah, I think as per usual, it comes down to the to the individual. But mm. I think also a key point you said there is that naturally you would probably gravitate to similar choices anyway if it was just N equals one, like just you. Mm. And for sure. And like, look, when, when the pointy end comes, you know, there is that point where I will say to Gemma and to my family, like, hey guys, we're at, you know, we're in the danger zone now. The only things I'm going to be eating are things I've prepared. And that's, it is what it is by that point where you need to have that extra bit of precision but i i don't i personally don't think it's necessary in the early stages of prep where as long as you're being sensible you're still going to be in a deficit you're still going to meet your requirements for the rate of loss mm-hmm. the situations come up in my mind lawrence and i just have to get the you're a man of god all right so what happens when you go to mass one of these times in prep and in and the and the priest there is looking at you and he's got the bread and he's got the wine how do you go about that situation? Hey, you, we, we've you had say, to... hey, we're g- give me the macros for the bread and the wine and let's factor it in. And then you go about your equation or? Well, clearly he has a set of scales next to <laughs> yeah. him when he's got oh, it, man. right? Holy scales. Yeah. No, um, to be Looks fair, like though, it, I, have, I think we've had communion a couple of times already during my prep. And I like, obviously I would have had it heaps of times in my last prep. And yeah, I've, I've never worried about it. Cause it's, it's once a month. And like, I think you're un, like, we're talking a sip of like grape juice that is like this much and but like grape piece, juice or just grape juice. I think it's just grape juice. I don't think it's actual wine. Mm. That would probably be enough to, to get me drunk by the end of prep, to be fair. Um, like we're talking about like a few mils of juice. Yeah, Joe. Yeah. Joe. yeah he we doesn't want it bad enough. Yeah. yeah he yeah, doesn't got that dog in him. Been, he's cheating on the diet. Nah. <laughs> yeah, no, I would be very confident to say that I had um, I had communion through the whole prep and I don't think it affected me too much. Yeah, no, you, you look, yes. you're looking good. It was just something that came up. I was like, how did it? And they, the, the, since COVID, I think they're even probably even lower in calories because now we have these little like COVID safe communion things where you get like a little plastic cup with the juice inside and then a thin film and then you peel away the film and then there's, there's like, this wafer underneath and the wafer like i wouldn't be surprised if there was like one calorie in it it doesn't taste like anything it doesn't have any flavor it's about paper thin so you know we're gonna get even leaner this year yeah, because yeah. we're not eating real bread people mm, that's, that's, those, that's what uh, i'm trying to say lines are gonna be even deeper oh yeah. you wait you wait better than tilapia yeah they were like what did you change this year less bread at the communion that's it I- I was just wondering if the priest was like looking on his security camera as you hurl like this wine over your shoulder and like throw the biscuit out the window. And it's just, he's just, oh, this man ain't a man of God. Yeah, they go to my chair and they're like, what's this doing under me? Why is there crumbs everywhere? I'll just <laughs> yeah. crumble it. All right. Um, next one's going to be for DC. Uh, before, he, before Jack takes over and defers it to Lawrence, that is. Is there any advice for shift workers trying to maximize their progress in the gym? Yeah, good question, man. Because I think shift workers from my experience i guess within the coaching space not that i've worked shifts myself but um i I think it is a challenging piece particularly when it comes to that word of you know optimizing variables because i think you know sleeping pattern is something that quite is quite abrupt it changes you know depending on on you know seven days on seven days off or someone who's doing fly in fly out or for example a nurse that might have a rotating roster it means potentially training at different times consuming meals at different times, sleeping at different times as well. 
potentially even weighing yourself under different conditions as well versus, you know, fasted or, or not. Um, so yeah, it, it can definitely be a challenging piece, but I think regardless, it still comes down to establishing some set of structure or routine within your week. So, and whether that routine, it needs to be two lots of routines, depending on, you know, when your shifts are and when you plan to sleep, et cetera. The, the athletes that I've trained that seem to have the most success are the ones that plan out their weeks in advance. Uh, and that would be my, I guess, my greatest recommendation there would be to, to plan plan your weeks accordingly to your roster. Because no doubt you're probably going to get your roster a week or two in advance and you've got the ability to train, you, sorry, um, schedule, you know, when you're going to train, when your meals are going to be, et cetera, you know, depending on one that, what that roster looks like. Um, it might also mean, you know, potentially structuring a program block, not on a, a seven day cycle. It might be on like a nine day or something like that, depending on someone's, you know, schedule as well. So that's something to consider rather than, you know, simply uh, five sessions within a seven day period. Let's say someone's training five day frequency. You might be looking at getting in a certain amount of training sessions within a, an adaptable time frame, depending on someone's roster as well. So I just think the, the parameters change a little bit when someone's working uh, within shift work, meaning that the weeks can obviously shift. And as a coach, having to understand that even when collecting data from the athlete, like weight trends and, and things like that as well, but ultimately it comes down to just establishing a structure. And I'm sure you guys can probably vouch for that as well. I think someone who's working shift work that doesn't have any structure around like what days they plan to tra plan to train when they consume their meals on their lunch breaks, et cetera, uh, those are the individuals that just struggle so much more with their bodybuilding goals. hundred percent. I a hundred percent agree. I think the biggest thing is like the structure because that's the one thing that's thrown off the most. So if you're able to plan your week in advance, like if there's going to be no time for you to be able to cook your meals, like on a night shift or something like that, ensuring that you've actually prepped some meals going into it, you have some sort of a plan, even planning times around like, you know, your work schedule in terms of training times, I think is a big thing too. So then that way you don't miss multiple sessions. Like, you know, maybe a night shift might be coming around, maybe doing the session before the night shift instead of after night shift. Cause after you've just done a night shift for what, maybe 10 to 12 hours, whatever it might be to then go and train in the morning is going to be extremely difficult. And probably that, that session quality is probably not going to be up to par. And that's another thing as well. Like, you know, with shift work is the session quality isn't probably going to be as predictable as what you'd want. You got to understand that sometimes after coming off like a night shift, your training performance might not be up to par, but like, you know, in your logbook, you might be able to put that in there. So in that way you have, a, you know, you want to obviously try and keep your training performance as high as possible, but, you know, try not to let that also get you too down. Like, you know, if you're having a bad workout, maybe sleep might've been a little bit subpar, didn't have your pre-training meal like a normal, um, those things do happen. But, you know, continually ticking the boxes, having some good routine and uh, doing the best you can, I think is probably a good little start. None dad, Jack, for once? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks, okay. Jack. So, thanks, um, yeah. so now we're going to actually ask Lawrence about it. Like, you know, Lawrence, how do you? No. Nah. Um, but this is the next question for you. What's the cost of having a spotter? Are we familiar with any studies or data? I know that you're always normally with another male. Like, you know, whenever you're doing your pressing, what's the go? Do you mean like, what do they cost me? Money's yeah, not yeah, an issue. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to pay them whatever they want. Yeah. With that new car coming around as well. Yeah, exactly. Is that, I actually, what do you mean? What is the cost? Like, like, is it beneficial to have a spotter to not do you know any studies? Oh, look, uh, I don't, I wouldn't imagine there'd be too many studies on it. Cause I think it's probably like a logical thing of, 
I mean, yes, in certain circumstances. I think that for me, sometimes spotting, I'll normally pressing is the main one because um, I'll I normally like to have a lift off with like the dumbbells and that sort of thing and, and with the barbells. But it is also dependent on like if that spotter is going to do a good job because I can't tell you how many times I've told someone like I've, I've literally laid out, I spent like two minutes explaining exactly what I want and I always finish with like once I get it up, I'll be sweet. Like I won't need you during the actual set. So you can, you know, you don't even have to hang around if you don't want to. Like if, if I'm not going to get it during the set, don't touch it. I'll just, I'll, I'll bail it. What happens? You know, you're going for that last one, you know, you're going to get it. And then you get the assist and you're like, come on. So sometimes I, I don't ask at all. If I, if I don't see anyone that I know will do it properly, which is a bit difficult at like powerhouse where I don't still don't know that many people, but I don't do any of my free weight pressing at powerhouse. So that's generally not a massive issue. I think that it can be beneficial if it's reproducible for certain exercises. Like when I watch like AJ and Loz train, for example, I would, I'm like, wow, that would be great to have someone there to always know you could maybe get one of those like assisted reps, but they're not going to just like bail you out and give you the rep. So I think if you trained with someone on a consistent basis, I probably would include more of those assisted reps um, in my training. And it would be nice to have someone there to always help you with like liftoffs. Like I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a diva. Like I'll ask DY to come help me on the leg extension. Like he'll just push the thing forward for me. So I don't have to get it up. Like all those little things, I find them really beneficial because I'm like, if I can save a little bit of energy. Extra 10% set, do you think to your gains? Oh, well, maybe for a normal genetic person like you, Jack, but for an absolute anomaly like me, we're talking an extra 50%. Yeah. <laughs> like my arms normally my hurt after them on well, them. My arms are extremely fatigued after doing the leg extension set for him. Like I'm pretty much... Oh, yeah. He goes, take more off. So I'm like sitting there. I'm like, how, how, are you going to start? And he, yeah, he and I'm watching and my quads aren't fatiguing, but I see that DY's got a sick bicep pump and I'm like, oh, what's going on here? But then it kind of feeds into Lawrence. Then he starts pushing harder. And then like, you know, that's how we're both so big. Exactly, exactly. But no, I think think spotters can be really helpful. But I think the biggest thing is like, you would want it to be quite consistent, quite reproducible. And I don't know if you'd have that much benefit from spotter if it's just someone new every week and you're not actually getting what you want from it. Mm. There actually is a study uh, that looks at the difference in- Training performance. He's, between he's been waiting twenty minutes for that. Spotter, yeah. spotter, and not spotter. Actually, no. This is a, this is a conversation that I had with an athlete recently because um, they wrote in their in their check in basically communicated that they're sort of fearful of asking someone in the gym for a spot, just out of like I guess you know maybe social anxiety or just not feeling like you want to interrupt someone to come and ask and, and help you and and I sort of put it in the way of you know most people would be more than happy to to help you on on a rep it's no concern you know just as you would feel inclined to help someone else if they you know they asked you but um, yeah it sort of led me to delve a little bit deeper and there was a study in 2019 presence of spotters improves bench press performance and um, by Sheridan et al 2019 and um, basically yeah they 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 found improvements in in bench press performance based on the presence of a spotter so. Uh, basically their, their conclusion was centered on like improved self-efficacy and just confidence within the lift. So that was like a psychological component associated with the fact that, hey, if I fail this, like I've got someone there to help me versus not, right? So kind of led them to, to push the repetition even more based on having that, maybe pushing that extra rep based on knowing that someone could help them if something went bad. 
I knew DC would have prevailed. I saw him doing the bench press, and Nicole was spotting him this week as he was repping out the 130. I was gonna, th- I was gonna throw the question over to him, but I went to Lawrence. <laughs> I'm sorry, DC. And you, you, you're like, there's no coincidence that he had a spotter. This must be yeah. entrenched in research. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I quote, I quote, Nicole was like, "Well, if you fail it, I'll just bicep curl it." I was like, "All right, that's cool." Yeah. Nice. Wow. Confidence went straight up. I don't, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but there was a guy once when I was training and he had given me a spot on like bench or something. And for some reason I was deadlifting that session as well. And when I finished up on bench, I had said like, let me know if you need a spot as in like, if you need anything this session, man, like you've helped me out, I'll help you out. But he somehow heard that as like, I'm going to need a spot again. So like I'm setting up from the deadlift and he like walked up to me and he was like, how do you want me to do this? Like as if he was going to spot me on the deadlift. Hip so, thrust from the back. Well, obviously, but yeah. Yeah, he seems awful. I let, I let him go, yeah. Just puts yeah. you in a, in a headlock and just starts yeah. reaching your head up. <laughs> <laughs> starts pressing it. <laughs> yeah, so I think if you can have a good spot from session to session and it's like, replicable like and it's not going to be this once in a lifetime where they spot you and give you like three assisted reps but also the spotter has to be decent like what like you were alluding to lawrence like i've literally had someone where i've asked them for a spot on the bench press and they've had their hand on the bar for the whole 10 reps and it was i had a nightmare do i like do like do i rerun the whole set after i've just absolutely taken and he's sitting there shouting he's like yeah again again i'm like I've already gone like five reps over last week's PB and I'm like three weeks out from show. I'm like, what do I do now? So I think you if give you them can... that pre-spot PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also assumed that that'd be decent because they're actually an ICN competitor themselves, but little did I know it means put the hand on the bar the entire time. So yeah, I need to give the two minute presentation from uh, Lawrence. Mm. When you ever ask for a spot, do you do you ask for a lift off? I never ask for a lift off because often people will be like, "Oh, do you want to do you want to help with a lift off?" And like I've had some assistance with the lift off, and I feel like sometimes it's been placed in a very awkward position, like further down my chest, and I'm having to sort of like try and balance it back up in line with my shoulders. And so moving from there, I'm just like, "No, no, no! I can I can unrack it. You just literally pull it off me if I'm guillotine pressing it." <laughs> yeah. 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 I think I think the biggest benefit like there for especially like the bench press is just having someone there to like, you know, if it does go down, like I can help you up. I think just that confidence, like being there can like help you squeeze out an extra rep or two. But yeah. Mm. But no, I don't get them to do the lift off on the see a lot of the time I train solo though. So it's like I, I want to be able to replicate it each time and I don't trust people. Especially when it comes to lift off and spot after that one experience. Mm. Um tips and tricks for handling our mental health and competition prep jack yeah so my number one tip would be to basically ensure that you're competing for the right reasons and i actually really like a quote that alana did at the end of lawrence's recent episode i don't need you to say it for me lawrence i think it was uh something like if social media didn't exist like would you still compete essentially so that's that's a great way of thinking about it, like, and to to partly ensure that you're competing for the right reasons. You don't want to be competing to change who you are. You don't want to compete to uh, try and please someone else. So I think that will eliminate a lot of potential pitfalls if you are competing for the right reasons and to ensure that you're not competing for any wrong reasons and also just knowing what to expect. So ensure that ensuring that your coach is or your coach should be doing this anyway, but they should be handling the recovery phase. They should be talking about the recovery phase before it even happens. 
Uh, they should tell you what to expect from the prep and some of the difficulties that you'll face. And I, I think that'll help with a lot of the potential mental struggles, but inevitably like we've all done preps and I think every single time we've, we face some struggles, whether it's body dysmorphia and not thinking that we're lean enough or not thinking that we're going to be ready or in the recovery phase where we we think we're failing the recovery phase because we, we have an extra meal that's not tracked or maybe we gain some weight fairly quickly. And I think just ensuring that you have someone in your corner to talk to like your coach or like a friend or family member or your, your partner, um, and not this might be pessimistic I, I like to call myself a realist like not not going into it expecting that it's going to be a walk in the park either like I would prepare that you are going to face some struggles mentally during it um, and that way when when they do occur or if they do occur like you can you can handle them a bit better yeah I think having that like good support structure like having a coach like and also going into it knowing what to expect pre um, like expect during the actual preparation phase itself and then post because i think a lot of people think that like once they do this prep they're going to end up like some ifbb bikini model and then next thing you know after the prep it's a nightmare because they've gained 10 kilos in a couple of weeks um they've had to recovery diet and they're not where they want to be and they think it's like more or less go straight back to square one so i think having a good understanding of what's going to happen actually post show like you're pretty much going to go back to nearly your starting weight like if you started prep at a decent weight, like, you know, you're probably going to be 10 kilos up over the next couple of weeks. And that's going to be a good spot for you to be at hormonally and mentally. But like a lot of people think as like, once they prep, like that's it, they get this dream body and it stays forever. Where realistic, realistically, mm. a lot of people that compete, that's probably what they're going to be thinking. But, you know, obviously DC, like, you know, he was a little bit more experienced. He's seen what some of the bodybuilders he's been in the game for a long time. He knew that obviously there was going to be some body weight accumulation post show. And hopefully it didn't affect him as much as what um, a first time competitor might've expected that went in there blindly. And I think Alana's quote is also very like good as well. Like, you know, making sure that you're competing for yourself and it's not like this big Instagram following, like, you know, you doing it just because you said you were going to do it and you think it's going to fix the issues because it's not going to fix the issues. It's going to make things a lot worse, especially for a period of time post-show. Um, Next one, which would be best advice you would give to people wanting to become better trainers and coaches. My biggest one would probably be just continued education um, through either courses. Even Lawrence himself has a physio. He's always trying to upskill. He's always looking at like studies, literature, and even courses like to, you know, further educate himself into how to manage pain. Like, you know, he reads books and so on like that. And I think just the continual education is going to be the biggest thing that separates you from a, just a standard trainer, a standard trainer. It's, it's quite easy to be a PT these days. Like you get cert three, cert four, but then like, what are you going to do after that? And you also want to show to your clients that, you know, you're willing to commit and go further than what other people are doing. Cause otherwise, why would they invest in you compared to any other trainer in the gym? Like doing stuff like nutritional courses, um, biomechanic courses, like, you know, as we always talk about Cass, like he's got some good courses, which go into detail about like the human body, how it moves, how to target certain muscles and just stuff like that. Like, you know, accumulating a bunch of courses that will further take you in the direction that you want to go in terms of your PT. If you don't want to do like bodybuilding style, there's heaps of other courses of uh, like powerlifting and so on like that. Like if you wanted to go down nutritional space as well, um, there's also that as well. What about you, DC? You got any extra courses or anything under the belt? Um, I would I would just say, I feel like you're going to get more respect from your peers, uh, your clients, your athletes, you know, others within the industry. If you go about your, you know, being a coach and a trainer in the correct way, which 
means you know achieving your desired level of education or accreditation within your desired field so it's you know if it's nutrition you're probably going to need to get either a dietetics degree i mean if you want to go down that route or of course you can become accredited through you know sports nutrition australia like lawrence can't call himself a physio if he's not a physiotherapy at least have a degree within that field you know what i mean so i think there are as much as there's an emergence of of uh, associations like sports nutrition australia and there's a lot of people doing the right thing when it comes to you know gain, gaining accreditation within that field. I still think there's a tremendous amount of coaches that haven't gone down that route yet, and perhaps you know still provide nutritional consulting and and recommendations for for their athletes or their clients. And you know I think you just need to do the right thing. You need to you need to basically go and get accreditation and, and insurance within that area to really you know partake and, and practice. It's the only way that you're going to be legitimate within the business, you know, within within the industry, and do the right thing. So I guess that that's probably my you know, main main tip there. Mm. You good any as well, Jeff? No, that's pretty much it. Like I I would just say like there are I guess there are to simplify it there are two different variables. Like there's your accreditation and and knowledge, and then there's the practical component of coaching as well. So you basically want to ensure that you're you're good at both you could there's no point being someone who knows it all but can't apply it and work with their um target population yeah i think at that point as well i think if you best advice i'd give to someone that wants to be a better trainer is actually care as well like try aim to be a good coach like you know a lot of people can just give blanket meal plans they can just give like blanket training programs not care do like easy done check-ins like yep looks good but it's like you know actually going above and beyond like you know messaging clients like you know go a step above of what maybe just the general coaching like you know if you look up to someone like lane norton or something like maybe adapt some of his coaching things like even like dc like you know obviously in-depth um check-ins with like loom like you know if you want to be a very good coach go above and beyond um and i think that's going to probably be the biggest thing that's going to help you grow your business and maintain a lot of clients that you do have Mm. i think a big one there especially is is even asking questions so you know asking your athletes questions you're servicing them at the end of the day and that doesn't mean questions as in you know how's your week gone but it's more so like what are you enjoying about the coaching uh that you're receiving you know what what do you think you need from me to be better supported uh what sort of strategies can we develop together to make sure that you're successful within this contest prep you're sort of asking those questions quite frequently rather than perhaps being that person that just says do this do that do this do that um i think you know the people that you service as a coach they're probably the people you need to ask the most about that sort of stuff, right? And get validation from, not necessarily from others, just on social media, the way you put out a post and you want to appease the masses on, you know, how many calories they should eat and how to calculate that. Like you need to be asking your your athletes and your clients, like how you can be better as a coach as well. I think that's really important. I think the word gathered there is just like actually caring, like, you know, Mm -hmm chatting to them like seeing how they're going like you know what they like and enjoy so that way you can cater it even more towards them as well mm. if, I, if i could um finish it with a, a quote that i heard i think it's mainly it was applied to healthcare when it was originally quoted but i think it applies to coaching as well is like people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care like no you can spout out all the fancy words and like i can sit there in a consult and just like throw out all the jargon to a patient and like make them think that I'm the smartest person ever. But if they can't actually see in my face and in my demeanor that I'm 
listening to them and understanding why this is such a big issue to them and understanding, you know, what their goals are and what they want out of this. It's like, well, what's the point? You know, you can find a robot online that will tell you all about the human body, but that's why people come to coaches and physios. Like they want a, a personal connection and want someone who's invested in their journey, whether it's getting on a bodybuilding stage or, or recovering from like a, an injury or something like that. So I think if you can keep that as like your mantra, that I think you'll do pretty well. Very nice. I'm going to go to the final question of the the, uh, the last podcast of the year, which is eating protein every two hours. I ate 15 minutes later than normal and my arms look like Daniel's. I'm going to let the listeners guess which Daniel that was, obviously. I'm actually going to throw that over to Jack. Right. Okay. Well, yeah. Short. The short answer is no, you don't have to eat protein every two hours. And I think the the grain of truth of where that originates from is is basically like stimulating muscle protein synthesis, which is the synthesis of, of new proteins, aka muscle. And whenever we eat protein, we, we elevate muscle protein synthesis, which is important for recovery and, and new muscle gain, etc. But there becomes a point at which it's just redundant, like eating every two hours or having a protein bolus every two hours is it becomes redundant at a or a point of diminishing returns, essentially. So I think in priority would be like, top priority would be how much protein you consume. Uh, so ensuring that you get like 1.6 to, to 2.4 ish grams per kilo of body weight a day, probably more when you're dieting, like up to three grams per kilo of body weight um, to help with satiation and, and potentially uh, muscle preservation as well. And then um, second and third, like, I think this is fairly contentious depending on who you ask in the nutrition spectrum around like quality of protein and, and also distribution of protein. Personally, I'd, I'd rate quality of protein above distribution of protein. So basically trying to get a, a highly biological value, valued protein um, for the majority of your protein intake or roughly like 0.4 to 0.5 um, grams per kilo of body weight um, at each meal um, of HPV protein. And then the final aspect would be uh, protein distribution so i i usually just say like three to five boluses of protein a day uh, which obviously is much less than eating every two hours i guess that whole question comes from the whole premise of like eating more frequently strokes the metabolic flame as well you know that there was that whole uh conversation around that whereas you know if i eat more frequently i'm, I'm going to be burning more calories and my meta metabolic rate is going to be quicker and and therefore i'm going to be potentially leaner and there's also just no strong evidence surrounding the, the benefits of that either. So, mm. you know, I think the benefit of eating frequent protein doses probably just comes down to more so getting in a sufficient amount of protein within your day. And I do think that the whole high meal frequency comes from, you know, the guys in the industry that maybe need to eat that frequent because they need to eat so much damn food, like the Jay Cutlers and the Ronnie Coleman's. And, you know, you see these guys eating very frequently and having six meals a day and things like that. But you know, when, when you've got to eat that much food, maybe your frequency actually does need to be that high because you, your satiation is just not going to permit you to consume, you know, a 2000 calorie meal at every meal sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I completely agree with you, Jack. I think there's, in terms of that, or, you know, order of hierarchy, it's uh, eating every two hours is just not even on there to start with. <laughs> could imagine like a standard office worker trying to eat every two hours for every hour they're up would be like seven eight meals i'd be fired on the job very nice i think, um, I think lane norton did did some research actually in like leucine and its role in in triggering mps mm -hmm. and basically the whole premise of consuming 
protein feeds within the day is to sort of strike uh, is to create that sort of positive protein balance in regards to like protein MPS or so muscle protein synthesis and, you know, muscle protein breakdown. I guess you could look at your total protein intake as representing your sort of free amino acids that you have within your day to uh, assist in, in, in protein synthesis and the boluses that you consume and the frequency within your day as being the trigger to create that response. So that's why it's important to have sufficient protein feeds within your day, but also consume an adequate dosage of total protein within your day as well. But I think taking it to the extreme of like two, every two hours, I mean, what are you going to do? Like wake up at, you know, 6am and just like 8am, 10am, 12, like 12pm. <laughs> I mean, at what point does that just not get ridiculous? Like it's stupid. Got that timer on. Yeah, I think just picking a good amount of scheduled meals throughout the day that suit you, I'd probably suggest at least four. Have like what Jack said, high quality protein sources throughout there and, you know, ensuring that you're hitting your protein intake throughout the day. I think it's going to be far more beneficial than uh, stressing about eating every two hours. Very nicely said, boys. I think that's going to wrap up the uh, final episode of our year. I want to thank everyone for the uh, continuous support and we'll catch you next week. See you guys next year.